You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we are back with part two of my conversation with Dr. Andrea Matwishan, the Associate Dean of Innovation and Technology and Professor of Law and Engineering Policy at Penn State. I've been talking with Dr. Matwishan about her fascinating research on the Internet of Bodies. If you missed the first part of our discussion, I highly recommend listening to that before returning to this episode. Now let's get back into the discussion about these devices, the data they generate, the manufacturers, the doctors working with their patients to understand, implant, and operate them, and of course, the vulnerabilities of the human body as an attack surface. And I know that um, Brad Smith, who our, our chief legal officer, likes to say that we're trying to regulate technology with typewriter laws. And I'm sure you've, you know, since you've been doing this, you know, since the 90s, you've seen how our current system doesn't really adapt well to new technology or brand new scenarios. Um, how did you come to the point of view that our current legal system absolutely was not ready for, you know, personal devices and devices that are sharing data about our bodies with the internet and not equipped really to handle the privacy or even, you know, to a certain extent, the security around that data. So part of the way that I uh, started putting pieces together around these complicated questions of body attached and body embedded devices uh, actually arose from the time that I spent as the Federal Trade Commission's academic in residence a few years ago. And I started to see where the existing regulatory approaches had strengths and where there were cracks between different regulatory agencies that were perhaps being leveraged in some ways that would uh, unfortunately in some cases lead to negative outcomes. Um, And that's part of what uh, my work on the Internet of Bodies is about, identifying those regulatory gaps and where traditional legal regimes can provide some baselines and some safety nets, but where we have holes that need to be addressed and, and thought through in arguably more creative uh, ways that don't fall as strictly along existing boundaries between agencies um, and can be addressed through new models of collaboration uh, across regulators. Um, So I'd I'd credit my time in government actually with uh, pointing that out, but also watching the evolution of the private sector and uh, the way that uh, certain Uh, Startups have started talking about the body as the new technology platform, and when you start to combine that with the short-term return on investment and uh, the interest in data leveraging that many venture capital firms exhibit, um, the rising value of progressively more targeted data and those uh, communications that permeate, it seems, every aspect of our technology ecosystem now, and every company is a tech company at this point, Um, all of those dynamics coming together and working within uh, 
a more traditional legal system that hasn't been updated in some key ways to um, think through the ramifications of those data flows. Uh, that's where I, th I think uh, your framing is, is absolutely uh, spot on, that there's uh, room for evolution in some of the paradigms that we're using today to look at regulating the technology economy. So let me ask you a little bit of a leading question um, and probably poke at it just a bit. Do you think that given the regulatory environment and the legal system, and of course politics plays you know, a role in everything um, and the frameworks we have, do you think we can catch up? Is there an opportunity that we are actually going to be able to pass the right legal frameworks before the privacy and data issues just completely spiral out of control, potentially exacerbated by our current crisis and the need to collect more data about people's bodies? That's the magic question. Uh, there is a set of uh, light touch, easy things that we can do immediately that would dramatically improve the situation. And I think after we find the political will to do those lighter lift things, um, and I can go into what those are in a second, but uh, after we, we get that initial round of updating out of the way, uh, at that point, we'll be able to look around and see what has truly changed uh, in our economy and what new harms or new categories of old harms need a reframing and a different regulatory approach. But right now, from, from where I said, there is still a whole set of basic, um, basic legal uh, interventions, improvements that we can make. Uh, and some of it is just reasserting traditional baselines that have been slipping because of our enthusiasm and, and moving uh, bravely forward without um, necessarily pausing to recalibrate those baselines. So what am I talking about? For example, all of us click yes on terms of use on every website we interact with and how many of us actually read those terms? Very few. But because of what I do for a living, I'm one of those people who reads every excruciating last <laughs> word. But what has become the case, and this is something that hits home with me since I used to write these things in the late 90s, is that at this point, some terms of use are functionally unreadable for even a legally trained reader. Uh, why? Because, first of all, the terms reserve the right to unilaterally amend the terms at any point. And the length of the terms, including in particular the number of other contracts that are incorporated by reference with hyperlinks, means that we are expecting an average user to read, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of words in order to be able to use a website. And, and so that's the question of uh, the consent that's supposedly happening in these cases starting to become somewhat troublingly fictional. And these are questions that contract law traditionally dealt with by recalibrating some of the defaults to ensure that baselines of consumer protection existed. Why does that matter? Because at the point at which consumers no longer trust 
the companies that they're doing business with and are afraid to do business with them because of possible negative outcomes or, um, say, liability transfer onto consumers, you have an erosion of trust that happens that impacts the entirety of the technology economy. And that's not a winning long-term strategy. So you may see the short-term return on investment in maximum exploitation of information or um, getting people to engage um, and get the clicks. But uh, at the end of the day, um, a business model and a uh, user interface that doesn't help people um, understand what's under the hood, what's going on, and what they're really agreeing to will end up with a bunch of consumers who feel tricked and who won't display the kind of brand loyalty that builds long-term return on investment and um, long-term goodwill for companies. That's fascinating. I mean, I never read the terms of service, but once I, while I'm on the service, I go in and look at every privacy and security setting to make sure I've ratcheted as far as I can, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, nobody really reads them except for, you know, the contract nerds like me who who do this for a living. But even Chief Justice Roberts has uh, stated in public comments that he doesn't read terms of service. So at that point, let's take a step back and realize that we're not really dealing with some type of bilaterally negotiated fair deal, but we have this kind of mutant internet-based construction that takes some of the problems that we had before in form contracts. If you think about old school rent car rental agreements from the 80s that uh, people you know, were signing but weren't really negotiating, but we've taken it up a notch because if you have a paper contract in front of you, you can at least as a consumer cross things out and initial them and your changes as a matter of traditional contract law take precedence over whatever that doctrine, that document, that document said. Um, but uh, that's not something we can do on the internet. You can't cross out provision number six in the terms of use. It's take it or leave it. That inability to modify that unilateral amendment and then the dynamic of courts enforcing those agreements pretty aggressively, particularly in some circuits, um, such as the Second Circuit, which is New York-ish, the fact that the hyperlinked agreements themselves may be equally challenging for a user to understand and find even, all of these dynamics lead to untenable long-term situation uh, in terms of the the balance between users and the companies that are relying on these agreements. And these contracts are the main way that we've traditionally organized the web. Private ordering through these contracts has been the engine of the way that we've done business. And so thinking about how usable they are, uh, whether there is a fair shot for a consumer to even understand what's going on legally in those terms and on the site, that is an equally important part of figuring out the privacy and security dynamics on the site as the physical settings are. Because ultimately, even if you ratchet up the settings to a maximum privacy setting, if the terms say that the company can unilaterally disregard your choices and share that information with 800 trusted partners as it wishes, then ultimately it's a little bit of security theater rather than a meaningful choice that's being provided through those technical controls on the site. 
I'm going to change course just a little because I want to talk about in the time we have two topics that are that are pretty important. One is that these devices all send data someplace, right? They're all going to some type of database, some type of storage system. And I wonder, um, from your perspective, are the keepers of the data, are they actually equipped to think about things like HIPAA laws, basic body functionality, human error, human emotion? I mean, they're not just getting IT data anymore. They're getting human data. Yes, exactly. Uh, so the first point that I'll make is that many of the Internet of Bodies devices are simply not under HIPAA. They're not covered by any of those kinds of privacy protections. HIPAA applies to covered entities referring to traditional medical data holding entities. We're talking about hospitals, insurance companies that do health insurance, uh, doctor's offices. But when you're looking at the Fitbits of the world and other companies that are doing, say, recreational augmentation, like injected contact lenses that give you enhanced uh, augmented reality gaming capabilities, none of that falls under the current drafting of HIPAA. Certainly the companies would argue that. Um, So that's one limitation. The other limitation is that some of these devices fall between the cracks of the medical devices and the definition of what a medical device is from the FDA's perspective and the uh, lifestyle enhancement recreational devices that fall only under the authority of the Federal Trade Commission to regulate. Um, and so there you end up with uh, your connected fridge being functionally regulated uh, in a way that is um, identical to some of these body attached uh, and maybe even body embedded uh, devices. So so that's part of the challenge as well. Um, But one of the maybe law nerdiest, but I think most important questions that exists with the management storage and uh, ultimate repurposing of these information flows comes up in the context of startups and their secured transactions, their uh, uh, debt management in bankruptcy, but even before. So uh, when startups, which unfortunately sometimes simply don't succeed, when they uh, borrow money, they provide collateral. And that collateral includes the databases and contract rights of the customers that have these devices sometimes embedded within them. And when a company chooses to stop supporting the device, uh, maybe because it lost a lawsuit about patent rights, or maybe because it is choosing to wind down operations and uh, voluntarily liquidate, or uh, whether it is purchased and uh, being eliminated by the the purchasing entity. Um, In each of these cases, the way that the interests of the uh, rights holders are determined, it's about recovering capital for the investors. It's not about the analysis is generally not about the consumer protection of the human bodies that are attached to the information and the contract rights into, into the bodies that uh, the products are, are embedded in. So you can end up with a situation where you have a startup 
in bankruptcy with devices embedded in bodies, and there may be no consumer representative included in the bankruptcy proceeding, and only the interests of creditors end up represented. So uh, the bankruptcy court may, but is not required to, appoint a privacy ombudsman, but the privacy ombudsman is not intended as a consumer advocate necessarily. The FTC sometimes intervenes in these kinds of bankruptcy proceedings where there is sensitive information on the line. But the FTC is a comparatively small agency. And so when we have uh, an economy that has more and more of these kinds of internet of bodies companies, the FTC just doesn't have the bandwidth to intervene in every one of these instances. So when you have the transfer of these databases and sometimes live feeds into human bodies, potentially, you can imagine scenarios where uh, the potential for abuse or unexpected repurposing uh, is very real, um, particularly because in the devices like the third generation brain implanted devices, you have read and write capability into the human brain. Uh, that's a very attractive set of contract rights if you wanted to, say, engage in a highly aggressive marketing campaign or, uh, say, um, encourage people to vote in certain directions. Um, and if the only thing governing the conduct is a set of end user license agreements, which footnote can be set aside by the bankruptcy court as executory contracts. So even those privacy protections don't necessarily extend to the consumers after a, a bankruptcy proceeding. Um, and I don't want to get even more into the legal weeds here, but yeah. basically the, the dynamics mean that you can end up with, a new company owning the rights to your brain implant or your other implanted device and the deal that you thought you had with the old company not being validated as the ongoing terms of sale by a court. Um, so I think, I, I think, and, and I only have time to ask you one more question, but I think on this one, um, I think the advice for consumers is, aware, you know, buyer beware and, and a lot of, you know, buyer beware to a certain extent, you're getting what you're getting, but a lot of awareness and a lot of, if you're going to go down the path and there's so much goodness, like you said, Parkinson's disease, there's so much goodness that can be gained, but you really need to know who you're doing business with. You can't, you can't leave it to chance. It, definitely. And also to think about what can go wrong and how you're going to address it. So um, for example, if you think it would be awesome to have embedded contact lenses injected into your corneas to be able to have a more satisfying in-game experience, you can choose to take that uh, step, but be ready to recognize that you may need to remove those lenses surgically down the road and that there are risks with every surgery. And so you may be risking some degree of your eyesight in the process. And if that's still the decision that you want to make, then uh, you proceed. But if that is uh, a decision that you make without thinking through the potential lasting physical damage to your body and the disclosures don't necessarily articulate all of this and they're embedded in some 200,000 word EULA, 
that's a kind of consumer protection scenario that starts to be a little troubling because ultimately having code uh, bricking and damaging human bodies is another level of social policy problem that we haven't dealt with in in most instances before. Um, And it uh, unfortunately may become an increasingly common phenomenon for us. So let's wrap with one question right on point. What questions should we be asking as we begin sharing our bodies with the digital world? What questions should we ask our doctors? What questions should we be asking tech manufacturers? What are the advice would you give consumers to, you know, if they had to ask three to five things, what would they be? So the, the first question is always around the details of implementation. Uh, We are already seeing in the news, uh, this week, some of the COVID tracking apps spectacularly crashing and burning because of basic implementation failures in the way that the the code interacts with devices. Uh, So the first set of questions deal with the the technical basics. And not every consumer is capable of parsing those those technical basics. So some of this is uh, doing good research and relying on third-party experts to help you understand how that works. Um, The second set of questions relate to the possible repurposing of the information. So we've already seen cases where pacemaker data from Uh, consumers has been used to convict them of fraud. Uh, There was a case uh, where uh, a person with a pacemaker uh, allegedly committed arson uh, and the pacemaker data was turned over by a third party uh, that managed the pacemaker to the police and that information from the third party uh, that the third party did not in Uh, need permission from the the body that the pacemaker was uh, residing in, Uh, that third party held pacemaker information was used as evidence against the uh, alleged arsonist. Um, So the the repurposing possibility is uh, important. And uh, really, without additional legislative backstops, uh, the ability of those end user license agreements to be unilaterally amended and the fact that some courts are enforcing that means that this second set of issues about repurposing of data are deeply problematic uh, because functionally the consumer won't have meaningful control uh, with that ability to modify. So I really want to thank you for making the time to join us today and uh, hopefully you and I get a chance to um, speak again in the future. Thanks. My biggest takeaway from the episode we did on the Internet of Bodies was that we don't have the visibility and control as consumers that we need, and we take a lot of things for granted and assume that there's laws or regulatory environments to protect us, and that simply isn't true. I want to thank our audience for listening in, and uh, join us next time. We're going to have a lot more coming up on Afternoon Cyber Tea. Thank you. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.